folks. Welcome to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patrick. Two Feet Apart is a space for individuals to learn that language matters, that words mean things, that to embrace diversity means to practice inclusivity within the LGBTQ plus Indigenous, people of color, and Black communities. To embrace diversity means to provide accessible practices for those who possess visible and invisible disabilities. It's a space to place egos in the crevices of our beings in hopes of broadening mental horizons to foster growth. It's a space to fuel mindfulness. It's a space to emulate vulnerability in the sharing of our stories because our stories are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers, our superpowers. With that in mind, happy listening. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patra. Today, we have a dear friend and very lovely human all around. Um, Carolina is an educator in Ontario. She's also a single mom immigrant and the founder of Feminine Harbor. Carolina, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Thank you for having me, Patra. It's truly my pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. And um, so about me, um, I, I'm an educator, as you mentioned. I am um, a single mom of two little girls who are not so little anymore. They are getting up there with the uh, teenage years. Um, I was uh, an actress, actually, before I became an educator for about seven years. And I worked with a theater company here in the Waterloo region uh, called um, the Multicultural Theater Space, so the empty space that was founded by the late uh, Majdi Boumatar from Lebanon. Um, and then um, I also freelance sometimes as a writer. I write uh, poetry, some essays. Um, yeah, and just do a little bit of everything that keeps me moving and ticking and energized and inspired. And then Feminine Harbor is my passion project, which is a platform for storytelling of women of very different um, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, as well as uh, different ages. It's very uh, cross-cultural as well as um, cross-generational. So, and it was intentionally designed that way. Amazing. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Feminine Harbor. Um, so I've spoken at two of the events and mm-hmm. both of them, the stories from other speakers that were there and just the overall experience really shaped a lot of like my outlook and the way I choose to kind of live my life. And even it has shaped a lot of like what came to be this podcast and things like that. Um, So I would love if you could share a little bit more with people that don't have such direct experience um, so they can hear a little bit more about like the magic that you're creating there. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little scary (laughs) to think. Um, It's amazing actually. I'm honored. I'm very honored that something that, you know, I, I designed, which it, you know, it's, it's really speaks to the cross-generational piece of it, because I think when you spoke in one of our first events, you were, how old were you then? Do you remember? I think I was like, just turned 20, to be honest. Right. It was a while back and you were super mm-hmm. young, right? Yeah. Um, Cause that was before I got married. Right. And, um, and so with that in mind, like it's so cool to see you as a part of the the vision that I already had because you were one of my youngest speakers at the time so 
let me go back um, to the origins of feminine hybrid because you are a part of that dream in in the sense that it was it was designed to inspire leadership and creativity in the community and to see you thrive and to see you blossom and to see you think about ways that you want to contribute to the world in, in an authentic manner truly uh, speaks to to the work that I'm doing and 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 it gives me hope because it's it's doing what what it was designed to do. So basically I started okay actually let me back backtrack even further. I don't tell the full story all the time but I'm going to tell you that cuz I think you're going to get it and, and think it's pretty cool. So I first had uh I first had an idea about an, a nonprofit that would bring more equity around women's uh, pay scales, actually. I was thinking more financially, how to how to bridge, you know, the equitable inequities around uh, diverse backgrounds in, in women. I was 19 years old when I thought of that for the first time. And of course, at the time, it was not an elaborate idea whatsoever. It was just a, a dream, like it was just a spark in my brain. And I thought, wow, like, we need that. Like, can, is anybody doing that? Um, and then when I was 26 or no, 25, I started a blog. Um, so, you know, just uh, at the time, and, and I think it's still online somewhere if you Google it, but it was in Portuguese. It was Feminine Harbor, it was Porto Feminino, but it was in Portuguese. And it was a blog about my search for, it was a personal inquiry. And now I have the language. I didn't know that that what I was doing was a personal inquiry narrative in terms of analyzing my own, my own narrative, my own story. But it was a search for meaning for me in terms of trying to figure out whether I wanted to have kids or not. And so I was, you know, I was analyzing my life. I was analyzing how I, like, what gave me meaning and what gave me direction to understand whether I wanted to be a mother or not. Being a mother was not an easy choice for me. It was I, you know, I was raised to be a feminist, and as we know, there's so many shortcomings. It's not to say I don't, I don't want to dishonor the work, the work of lots of feminists who have um, paved the way for me to tap into power. But that work also is not—it's a bit disconnected from the, you know, work of matrilineal cultures that honor women as, you know, more whole beings and feminine entities and all that. So, I—I I really struggled with whether I wanted to be a mother or not. And so that blog had that name. Uh, it was a name that was always with me for many, many years. In fact, I remember talking to a cousin of mine when I was very young and in Portuguese, and he discouraged me from the name because he said it was never going to catch on. Um, and fast forward to my master's. So when I was uh, in 2010, I started. And, and those ideas, they, they live in your body. They stay with you. They may not go anywhere initially, but if if it's true, I've learned through my life now I'm 41 and I, I speak about my age openly because I think it's important for young women to have that reference of age with women like me because I want to speak about hope. I want to speak about how life does change. And if you persist and if you stick with it and if you surround yourself with good people, it, it does change for the better. I, I want people to have hope. So, you know, but things were not always clear. When I was 26, there was not, there were these severed ideas. It was not, you know, things weren't necessarily coming together. They were all kind of separate and here and there. Then in 2010, 
I was actually pregnant. So I did decide to become a mother. And that's a whole beautiful story in its own. We'll see if we come back to it or not. Um, but when I when I got pregnant, I started doing my master's. And again, that, that inquiry was there. It was, how come we have so many female leaders in education and we don't have female leaders? And at the time I studied the research, there, there was actually... Um, uh, a document that was put out by the government of Canada showing that various industries, uh, they fell really short from the 25% recommended by the United Nations um, of women in leadership in order to reach a minimum balance in anything, like in governance boards and all that. And I said, you know, we are missing out on something here because education in Ontario, in the, in the system, there are lots of female leaders. People laughed at me at the time. Because they were like, well, of course there are. And I said, well, it's not obvious. I want to understand why. There's certainly some some sort of condition happening that allows for that to be taking place. Um, and, and so I was stubborn and I decided to study it. And sure enough, what I've discovered, Patra, is that the literature is there. We just don't read it. There are people who have been inquisitive and asking the same questions, but we don't we don't. We haven't built a counter system and a counter culture to actually value that research. Um, so, I found a book that was incredible, that changed my life. That was um, uh, "Women in Leadership" um, by Dr. Grogan and Shakeshaft, the two uh, writers. It's a very thin little book that I highly recommend, and it did show the markers that I was looking for, and they were social markers in an environment in an ecosystem. That was built in such a way that it, it allowed women to thrive precisely because they had enough people to look up to as role models. And so they, they had, um, you know, a quorum there where they could look to people who paved the way. Um, they, they had women around them, enough women that they could run um, social skills and, and emotional stories by aside from the professional agenda so let's just say you know you're having a baby who's colicky and and there's more women there who can actually on the side and on the fly answer to that question and so there were there were five different markers in that book and what I did was I started then taking that question further I thought Okay, I have a background as an actress because by then I had already quit my acting career. But that again, none of that goes away. I know how to stage things. I know how to produce things, right? Like I had a, a strong background. I thought, can I take this to the community? Can can I create something that if I use these markers, but I I call them something different? Like I create a paradigm and I create some markers that are aligned with this with these ones. If I do something really beautiful, beauty was always at the forefront of my idea, because I think if we're going to put something out in the community, I, again, I personally, I, I just want to make it beautiful. I think the women around me, the the racialized Black, Indigenous women, we deserve to come together and we deserve, deserve to come together in an honoring way and through beauty. Um, and so I just wanted to create something beautiful that would align that vision of this book and the research that I found, but in a way that would make sense for the community. And so I, I basically, I created a different code for the same kind of set of markers and values that I found in the research that I was reading for my master's in order to inspire female leadership in the community, because I felt those markers were not there in the overall ecosystem of the community, but they were present in the smaller ecosystem of the school system. 
So that's sort of how I created Feminine Harbor. And the reason why was to then hope that by bringing the women together, intentionally building a, a and designing a, a structure that is, we operate in person, we don't operate online, um, but we do have some technology attached to our um, our events. So we do streaming and we have, you know, slideshows and beautiful lighting and all that. It's a production, right? Um, and by intentionally designing a platform that was cross-generational and that it was cross-cultural, I was hoping that we would begin to find answers in each other by, because none of us carry all the answers that we're looking for. We're too severed. We're too broken, especially, you know, us as racialized women. There's a lot of gaps, right? So it's interesting to me and humbling that you found some of your answers in me. I'm not a black woman, but I am a mixed woman. And so maybe we also need to humble ourselves. And that was what I always thought of. Like, if we are so broken, if our society is so broken, then perhaps we need to aim to become whole by allowing ourselves to empathize and learn from the little bits that we can find in each other. Maybe we won't find all of the answers that we're looking for in one person. Perhaps we shouldn't. But maybe if we do become humble with each other and we we humble ourselves to what we all bring to the table, then we can find a lot of answers spread out in the community. And and I feel that that's what Feminine Harbor has done. I mean, I find so many women inspirational. They don't always carry the answers that I'm looking for, all of the answers that I'm looking for. I don't find all of my answers in one woman, but then I also think that's unrealistic and 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 that's also uh, unhealthy. You know, we shouldn't expect to find all the answers in one person, right? Um, so that's what Feminine Harbor has done is is uh, through the life stories and these events that we do seasonally. It's brought together through storytelling and in a beautiful environment of live music and fine arts, women with beautiful stories that inspire each other to look for answers in places that perhaps they they didn't expect to find them. I had no idea that was like the background to Feminine Harbor. And now I'm even more honored to have been able to be a part of it. And I also think it's really powerful for your daughters to like grow up in this environment and to hear you speaking about it and to be able to firsthand like witness you actioning this and like bringing together that community and like those stories because I I feel like even them just like even if they're not paying much attention because kids are kids sometimes and they're like mm-hmm. okay um but even if they're just kind of like passively there and passively hearing about it and passively being involved um I feel like the impact that that will make on them as they like develop into women or whoever they choose to develop into I feel like that'll be so incredible to watch um and just your ability to like humble yourself even translating that into like parenting and how much thought and courtesy you put into like making your decisions and learning from the people around you um I think is so powerful and it's definitely one of the the reasons that since we met and I'm always trying to figure out like 
when exactly did we meet? I know, um, I can't remember that either. I just can't remember how. Somebody I, must have put us together or something. I don't know. Yeah, like there was an introduction. And then I know we were just kind of like online friends for a while. And then the Feminine Harbor event came up and I saw it on your Facebook. And that's how that yeah. all started. But I, I, for the life of me, cannot remember who made that introduction. But whoever, whoever it is, thank you. Because um, you've definitely become like someone that I genuinely look up to and not just in like a, like pretty much in every level, like as a mother, as a woman, mm-hmm. as a storyteller. You know I have my shit, right, Patra? Like I, like. Oh, we all do. <laughs> I'm not, like, when I hear that, I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to be a disappointment. Like I, I know. I think it would be more disappointing if you didn't, because then it would be unobtainable. And I'd be like, wow, she is perfect. I can't reach that level. I can't get there. But knowing that like you're human and things like that makes it a lot more relatable. And so in a way that is like, oh, that is something that like, she's not just a superhuman plopped out of nowhere. Like it's obtainable for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I try my best, um, not necessarily to be a room. Like, I, I've i been thinking more about that lately. Um, to be quite honest, I mean, this big journey started nine years ago when I got divorced. And as you know, that sort of plunges you into a big journey, especially, I think, you know, women in the last, I would say, 15 years, maybe always, I'm not sure, but you know, it was a journey of self-discovery. And I think for me, it started out with my daughters and wanting to heal and become a better version of me. But also, I didn't want to make the same mistakes that my mom made. And God bless my mom. I love her. But I just felt, you know, in order for the world to move forward, I need to be better than my mother. (laughs) You know, if if I'm stuck at the same traumas and the same places that my mother was at, then, then nobody is growing and there's no renewal of, of human condition, really, like of, you know, how we love, there's no growth, right? So started with my girls. But then more recently, especially, like I said, I I turned 41. And then I've gotten a, a job in leadership now, like I'm, I'm a vice principal of a school here in Waterloo region. Um, in my, in my day job. And, you know, it's really become important for me to, to have these young teachers and not, not just the women, to be honest, but the men too. Am I someone they feel safe with? Because I think, you know, everyone who taps into power is prone to a level of toxicity. I mean, we all, we can all be bent by power, you know, and we have to be very careful when we tap into it and very, very humble and very aware and very, so I I try to lead with a servant leadership mindset. And when I ask myself, how am I serving the best and the youngest ones around me? It's really, if I, if I am being my best and if I'm being careful with them and caring, you know, and, and, um, and, yeah, and those things keep me in check. Uh, like I said, I'm human. Like I, you know, I I fail miserably at personal intimate relationships. I think I think I'm still healing a lot in that regard. 
Um, you know, sometimes I fail as a mom. My daughters make sure to let me know. <laughs> um, but overall, I, I think it's the uh, ability to be reflective and to be aware that that I can grow and I can learn at, at all times. And that the learning is nonstop because people will come through in your life and, and things change, time changes you, right? Like I'll only get older. And so as I get older, my body will change. And then younger people will come into my life. And those people, like, you know, a woman like you now, and when you're like here in this time and place at 26, in 10 years time, a 26 year old will be a totally different beast, right? For me, who will be 51 then. So there's like a wider gap between us and I'll have to figure out like, so I think just staying open to those changes in human relationships allows me to stay on my toes on my toes and just kind of go, okay, approach mindfully, approach relationships, community, uh, people in the most caring way that you can. And and also I should also mention in terms of feminine harbor, so that one book I mentioned at the beginning was definitely, I would say, the the central focal point to my research. But in terms of influences, there are other very recognizable names. And at the time, they weren't as much. Today, they are like very well recognizable. But back in 2010, when I started the research, you know, I, I can say that some of the things that influenced Femme Harbour were um, Dr. Brené Brown and her understanding of vulnerability, her research around vulnerability. Like I really built the storytelling events around the research about vulnerability very intentionally because it was a way, you know, research provides a tool to keep people safe. Like it's been tested. I'm, I'm very um, academic in that sense. I think academics and academia is there when done right um, and ethically. It does keep people safe with metrics and validity of studies. And so I appreciate the work that Dr. Brené Brown has done. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. It's not encompassing of certain aspects um, that are the realities of racialized people. But it does provide, uh, and especially 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it provided an, a, a starting point to the importance of vulnerability in conversations, right? And it was a a safe research to use. I also use Dr. Gabo Mate and his research around trauma. Um, and so I was looking at how do stories of trauma and resiliency in, you know, if we do that through vulnerability and storytelling and narrative inquiry was another um, aspect of my research. If we can combine those aspects and can we create something for the community on stage that is not just writing in writing. And so I was guided by a lot of research, the ethics of care, uh, by Dr. Nell Noddings, also was a huge influence in my literature. So, and those things again, they just allowed me to build a solid foundation that was not just out of my brain. Like it connects to some really important pieces in our society that have been written down. They have been uh, re well researched, approved by different boards of ethics. And so I knew I had enough um, knowledge to keep people safe because the other piece for me is that it's very important that Feminine Harbor, you know, and, and you've participated in some of the events, it is not a place for women to come and, 
and one tell their entire life stories. It's not a place for them to tell a story that they're still living and that they're still hurting with. Uh, there's a place for that, and that's probably best suited for a therapist, right? We make a very clear distinction about those things to keep the storyteller safe, to keep the community safe. And so there's a very clear guideline in terms of what stories we're looking for. And it's all based on this research that I share with Amazing. Um, <laughs> and like, that's, that's like the first and foremost. Um, there's so many things you said there that like, I want to be able to touch on. Um, so one of the big ones that like you said last was like, you want to have like the knowledge to keep people safe. Um, and I think that in itself is such a powerful line and such like a, an honorable thing to try to base your impact off of. Um, so I just, I love that. Um, I think one of the important things is really recognizing that like, we do the best with what we know, but once we know better, we have no excuse not to do better. And so in terms of looking at like generational, you said, um, you know, and it's nothing against our mothers, but we need to do better than them. And in saying that, it's not a point of offense to them. It's more just kind of like, we recognize that you did the best with what you knew. We heard those stories. We're actively listening. We're paying attention. And so now we know how we can do better. And I hope that my son and your daughters and any of our future children or, you know, whoever they grow up to be and look back and they're like, okay. I heard my mom. I heard her stories. I know what she was doing. And now I'm going to learn and do better from that. Um, so being able to really hone in on both the importance of that vulnerability and recognizing that like there shouldn't be that shame in those stories when you recognize that something needs to change. It shouldn't be like, I'm a terrible person automatically. Like it shouldn't be the narrative we're telling ourselves. The narrative should be, I did the best with what I knew and now I can move forward and do better. Um, and even on like a generational level. So taking that key vulnerability to being open to that and being receptive to understanding that like you're constantly evolving. Life would be so anticlimactic and boring if you... Mm -hmm. Just we're born knowing everything, did everything perfectly, and that was the end of the story. Um, because there's no ups without the downs and all of that. So being able to grow and continue sharing that openly, um, I think that reflection on like a multi-generational level is so, so impactful. Yeah. And I think um, just to touch on like two points that you made, like one, the safety piece for me, I think it's important to, again, remind your listeners, I am an educator and, and so, and I am an academic. So with those two things in mind, like I have my master's and I still have any, the ambition of doing my doctorate. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, ethics and safety is always in the forefront of my mind as an educator and as an academic, right? Like I, I have to find ways to keep people safe. And I, I have to be honest, Patrick, like I haven't always gotten it right. 
there were times at Fenrir Harbor that I had to take a step back and think, okay, that really did not come out safely to the community. And I've made mistakes like we all do. Um, but they were honest mistakes. They were never mm-hmm. lack of care. They were just things that you don't foresee or that you, and like you said, then once you know better, once something happens, you know how to not let that happen again, right? And you prevent that from happening again because you know that that can hurt the community or you can, you know, backfire in a way that is is ugly. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I put as much as I can in place to to create a safe environment because, um, you know, there are spaces that are brave spaces for sure. And I think Feminine Harbor is a brave space. I mean, there are lots of stories that are quite brave, but it's mm-hmm. not a place. Um, it's a harbor. And if you think of the analogy that I created, and I should actually uh, speak about the name a little bit, too, because everything was very well thought of. Everything was very carefully thought of. Um Feminine Harbor, it was on purpose, not Feminist Harbor at the time. You have to think back to like 2016, right? When I, Mm -hmm. actually before that, 2014, when I was really thinking about it and creating it. Um, And it was on purpose because I wanted to tap back into that matrilineal um, feminine energy. I wanted us to talk about feminine. Like back in, I have a post, I think it's from 2017 from a cover of a magazine that came from University of Waterloo on like honoring women in science. And they are all wearing black suits because that feminine energy was so not welcome then, right? Like you didn't see Mm -hmm. female scientists wearing a beautiful flower dress or, you know, in order for you to be taken seriously, you had to internalize a lot of masculine traits. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and I didn't want that. I never wanted that because I have indigenous background. That's something I think it's important to highlight too. Like uh, my great grandma and my grandfather, they were indigenous in Brazil. And I, I, and I was raised in such a manner that, I mean, I did have a lot of internalized misogyny in me, but I was raised in a culture where, you know, the, the whole piece of being a woman and being a mother, that's, that's not to be ashamed of. I had to deconstruct a lot of things in my brain because I did also have so much of the white feminism that was presented to me uh, where I went to school. So it created a bit of a dissonance in my in my um, in the way that I exist in the world. But I didn't want to go to let go of that feminine energy. For me, it was very important. But the harbor piece is there as a structural piece that a masculine energy also is there we just don't need to internalize it you know like we can be feminine while creating structures right we can remain mm-hmm. feminine while creating and the harbor um analogy like that idea of it being a place of safety like when you go you know into journeys in, you know back in the days when navigation systems were how the world connected uh, the harbor is a controversial image because it's it's what caused the poison here in the Americas. It's what brought colonization and slavery over to the Americas. But over time, I have learned to to see how it's also the point of contact for so much healing to happen if we want mm-hmm. to make it that way, if we want to make it so. 
um, a story that defines my, there's many stories that define me as a human being, but a very powerful one is how my, my indigenous grandpa and my um, Portuguese grandma met at a harbor city and they met over at this harbor. And if it weren't for that harbor being a place of safety by then in the 1940s because of the war, then those two very different human beings would have met and that cross-cultural love and this mixed individual that is sitting here with you wouldn't have happened, right? So I think that we can, and maybe I'm being naive and I don't have the notion of time, but I, I have seen enough mixing of, of, of different cultures happen and I do see the beauty in it. And I think that so much good can come out of it, but we need to steer it. We need to really steer it in a way that we then reclaim those structures, right? So Feminine Harbor was very intentional in the sense that, you know, if that caused the poison, that maybe we can take over with feminine energy and bring about the healing through those structures. And that's why um, I also, you know, I stage it in a, in a very colonial structure, which is an art gallery. But they've been incredibly generous with us and incredibly supportive. And it's a, it's a structure that is truly trying to bring about healing by changing narratives, by, you know, reframing how they present art. Um, so I, I have hope that it is possible to connect the world through these harbors along the way in different ways and, and through these analogies of harbors of being those places where people meet, they come and go. And all that new renewed energy of, you know, women of diverse backgrounds um, and cultures and ages meeting, I, I think it's a really beautiful analogy. And I have to also give a plug to Carl Sagan. Um, he has a, a fantastic quote on how the Earth is the only planet to harbor life as we know it. And that quote, you know, I already had the name Feminine Harbor when I read it, but then it was just like, yeah, like Mother Earth and even Carl Sagan knew it, right? So it just kind of like put the little cherry on the cake for me and, and it just solidified the name. Mm -hmm. So what do you see Feminine Harbor evolving into from here? Mm-hmm. So it's a tough question because I I believe in organic growth in the mm -hmm. sense that I don't want the structure to become bigger than the feminine. I don't want that structure to become bigger than me at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting that like everybody, we are in an age right now where everybody's creating content and everybody's racing to, to create things. And I'm actually seeing myself going into an opposite direction where I am purposefully and intentionally slowing time down because there's so much racing. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is Feminine Harbor is a passion project. As you know, I volunteer my time and, and it is a, a nonprofit where all of the money that we have goes towards paying our musicians and, you know, giving a a uh, small stipend to the storytellers, but I don't make any money off it, nor do I want to at this point, only because, and I'll be honest, it's a selfish reason, it gives me full-on creative power. 
the minute that I commit to any investment in any sponsorship, then I have to cater my creative uh, vision to those sponsors usually. And I'm just not interested in that. I don't need it. I have an incredibly like fulfilling job and a, a very well-paying job. Um, what I really want right now out of this is is the freedom to design however I want to and to shift mentality. So we've been talking about a couple of small things. Like I I have started once, but I, I kind of dropped the ball on that and I may kind of pick it up again in a different format. Again, drop the ball is a is an unfair uh, statement too. Like you 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 do things, you fail, and then you learn, and then you reframe them, and you reformat them, and you redesign them, right? Like, so I had a beta version out there. But I, I want simple things. Like, I would love to have, like, a, a music playlist on Spotify through Feminine Harbor, you know? But in order to highlight female musicians that are amazing, um, yeah. I'd love to have a book club. I think that educational piece is really important. And I was just offered a space in the community for a book club. Um, but I want to grow it in a way that is, uh, one, always centered around community and always in a way that it's not bigger than what I can maintain and what I can run. And And as long as I'm alive and as long as I am around, I can run this in any way. Like once I retire in from my actual job, I might consider structuring it in, in terms of um, its finances and sponsorship and scale a little bit more. But at this point, the, like you said, like the magic that it creates in the community is it's so pure precisely because it doesn't have to be catering to anyone but but us. And that's a mm-hmm. privilege, you know? It's a mm-hmm. lot of freedom for women where we don't have that much freedom elsewhere. So I I am, you know, trying to to hone in into the relationships I'm building in the community. And as much freedom as my community gives me, as I will take it, I'll take that space. Um and then see where it goes organically with the women in the community. But I think a book club is in the works. Definitely something on Spotify in terms of a playlist. Um, and um, I mean, you know, one of our board members has been talking about a podcast and I don't, I don't know. I just, I just can't sustain it. Right. So I want to mm-hmm. do things that I can sustain it. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Absolutely. And I'm excited for the book club because I will be there. Um <laughs> But the listeners to this episode can't see me nodding along, but your answer really resonates with me because um, as you know, and as most of the people I interview know, and I'm sure if you listen to Two Feet Apart and recognize that that, uh, there are no ads and things like that, um, I purposely intentionally choose not to monetize it because I want to have that creative power. I want it to be a passion project. And I don't want it to be like, we're having this conversation and I'm focused on, okay, I need to, I need to make sure I touch on this point because an ad's related to it 
Mm -hmm. or I need to make sure I don't say this because it doesn't align with these brands. And I work in that space outside of two feet apart. And so I especially want to make sure that like, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, just like automatically thinking of the strategy for it. And I'm like, why would I do that? Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. That is not Mm -hmm. my goal with this. Um, Because I feel like those stories like you said, are so well told and you don't want to even risk kind of creating an environment in which that doesn't flourish and it's not as fostered as nicely. Um, so I, I honor that and I recognize that that's like a, it's a really powerful decision to be able to make when you're in a place where you're like, I can choose mm-hmm. not to make income from this. It's not something that, I would rely on and that is like a point of privilege for me as well um I'm really grateful for the for the outside job I do have that allows me to have this passion project um Mm -hmm. and so but I think it's beautiful um the way that you're creating such a, a safe harbor for these stories to be told um and for these community members to come together and honor and learn from each other in such a holistic way that really caters to all generations, regardless of where you're from or where you're going. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, it's actually part of our motto. It's like for women who remember where they're from and who are not afraid of where they're going. Um, <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> yeah. You didn't know that. I thought you had done it on purpose. I was like, Oh, she's I doing not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's one of those, um, if you look at the slides at the beginning, like I, I have that sentence, maybe it was internal, I didn't even notice, but um, yeah, it's it a, might have about been. the journey, it's like, it's women who look back and are not afraid of their, where they, or who remember where they're from and who are not afraid of where they're going, so. Look at that. That's the journey, um, and yeah, I just think, you know, if we keep pushing with content that is this pure, if we if we keep making the space, if we keep changing the narrative and pushing for counter narratives that are not monetized, that are not owned by anyone but our creative vision and our voices, then maybe I I have a dream. I mean, I still plan on kicking around for forty more years at least, and you know, I think in time we can. I, I've seen. Just in the time that I have been running Feminine Harbor, which really I would say it was from 2016 more actively till now and and with the two-year pandemic gap because I didn't just simply pivot because so much of our mm-hmm. events are about bringing community together in a live space, right, in a, in a place where you can actually mingle with the community. You can actually, you know, participate in... in um, getting to know one another when that intermission is there between stories. Um, But I've seen so much already change in, in how, in, in, in what we honor, who we hire, like the world is changing. Practices are changing. And mostly I think it's people who have found uh, ways to, to sustain a level of integrity that push for that change. We all have to participate in, in some kind of a system or another 
um, to to make a living in this world because that's how the world still operates. I mean, you have your job, I have mine, and and we and we do our best. And I do love my my job, um, but that's not to say that you know there isn't room for improvement in all of our systems, including the education system, that also has you know. Uh, a history there of a, a very patriarchal beginning. And, you know, I mean, the, the school district that I was a part of uh, only last year, um, I think for its entirety, I think it's a hundred and, I don't know, a couple of hundred years old, that particular district. And they just had their very first female director ever, just, I mean, seven years ago, right? So we're starting to, to see those changes. but in a time scale, it's just starting, you know, like it's really just starting. We've, we are small. We feel impatient because we want to see these changes, but we need to keep pushing and, and, and it needs to be selfless because they may not come about in our lifetime, but it's not to say that they won't make the lives of our children better. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's already better. For the fact of what you mentioned, I mean, just my girls are surrounded by books about strong women. I mean, they are already framing the world in a completely different manner than I was. You know, I I grew up listening to uh, watching Disney movies of princesses that didn't have a voice. Sleeping Beauty, right? She's sleeping. Snow White, she gets poisoned and sleeps. Everybody sleeps, all these princesses. Those are the princesses that I grew up with. They, they didn't have consciousness, right? They were always sleeping. Um, the Little Mermaid could talk. So they, the, these are the princesses that I grew up with. That you, you don't talk back. You don't have a voice. You sleep through the tr- struggles and you wait for someone to save you. That's mm-hmm. not my daughter's reality whatsoever, right? They watch, I mean, even... Frozen, which is about princesses. I mean, it's so much more elaborate and and complex. And so many of the movies that they watch are so far from what I used to, right, to watch. So I think it's a promising future, but we need to keep pushing and we need to keep being patient with ourselves, with each other, um, and doing the best we can. And also, I'll say something else that I think it's important to say. We need we need to stay humble because, um, you know, it's easy to think that just because we're doing a part of the work that needs to be done, that we are better than other people. You know, like I I struggle with activism where some activists like if you're doing work around queer rights, and then you already pat yourself on the back. Well, no, there's a lot of other people doing other work that kind of goes together with that. And until we can come together, and if you're only doing work to empower Indigenous communities, it's all important work. And until we figure out how we can come together to support each other in the work of liberation, acceptance, love, kindness, um, then we, we're still falling short. You know, we need to, like I said, we need to be humble to what we don't know and rely on each other and build the alliances 
in order to really form a, a counter system. Because I, I mean, being someone who belongs to a system, I do believe in systems. I think we need to find, you know, ways to communicate and to be mobile that go beyond our little circles. Because those can, you know, we don't, we don't want to feel trapped. We don't want to get, you know, into toxic circles either. We have to have freedom of speech, freedom of mobility. But it has to be ethical. And we need to count on each other to keep each other in check, right? Mm -hmm. And even just to touch on, you know, your point about like recognizing the need to be humble, regardless of like what you're doing, going back earlier in our conversation, that's kind of what we expect from like the generations before us. Because if we just say, that's it, I've done my job, I'm wiping my hands of it. I've, I've, I've made the difference I feel like I need to make and that's good. Um, then where's there room for evolution and how are we going to raise our kids to continue the pattern of making change and telling stories and doing all the things that we pride ourselves on doing if we're not open to recognizing that there's still so much more to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where it's going. I don't have that full vision. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a I mean I I feel like as a mother, which is really my main. I mother my children, but I also mother the community, you know, like so many young women yeah. that I I lend my motherly um role to um I feel like I'm always cleaning up, you know, like cleaning up the house. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, I was always cleaning up after my toddlers when I had them here. And now I yeah. feel like I'm always cleaning up the community. Like just, you know, if there's a, a big mess at a school, then I have to clean that up. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, as a leader now, I, I, it, it's still the same kind of vibe. I'm still mothering my way through the world, but just in a different way, you know, like just, you know, cleaning up bigger, bigger environments or, situations but there's always work if we're gonna and especially I think that's what we are going to be facing in the near future is we have to ask ourselves do we want to stay connected like do we want to maintain this level of connectivity and speech and if we do then then what do we have to do to honor it to to be ethical about it because the way that it is can't keep going right like we can't continue Mm -hmm. to exploit each other's thoughts exploit each other's bodies exploit each other's lands in the way that we've been doing so far so if we want to travel how can we reimagine the way we travel you know if we if we want and we've always traveled but like with this kind of speed right like where we can actually come and go because before all this technology was in place people could go but they couldn't come back and now we can mm-hmm. actually have this journey back in time i mean my grandmother she was an immigrant to brazil and she she went to brazil when she was 18 years old in the 1940s and it was um a ship i mean she went on a ship and it took i think 40 days or something crazy like that 20 days i don't know but close to a month or around and she didn't go back to Portugal because that journey was too long and too expensive. So you would go, like if you immigrated back then, you'd go and you wouldn't look back. And we have that privilege in, in today's world of, 
I mean, I've been to Brazil many times, even though I live here, right? If we want to sustain that level of traveling and that level of connectivity, then, then how do we move forward with that privilege? Um, how do we make it more equitable towards people who, who should be traveling if they want to? Or how can we make it more ecologically sound, right? Like there's so many questions to be answered, so many um, things to be cleaned up if we want to maintain certain levels of connectivity and mobility. If we want to maintain this level of of speech, then, you know, we have to rethink our ethics behind what we say because we're we're invading people's intimate spaces even more now than we were with the television where there was only like four or five channels right we're really getting into people's thoughts so yeah i think about all of those things and and how to what role does education play in it how voices of women and the stories of women play a role in it because i you know, as a woman who truly, I endorse the technology and the communication, but I think we can be a lot more ethical about it. Then I think, you know, there's different conversations that can be had, right? So there's, there's going to be work too. I'm, I'm old. I can work until I'm like, yeah, well past retirement. <laughs> there's lots of time. Yeah. Um, and even on the note of like being really ethical with telling those, even just like telling the stories and the way that we shape it and how that looks for our kids. Um, and I know you mentioned like you grew up on the little mermaid and sleeping beauty and snow white. And I oftentimes like would watch those. And then I found myself rejecting a lot of the feminine parts of myself because I didn't want to be associated as weak. So as much right. as I loved dresses after a certain point in time, I was like, I'm not wearing dresses or the color pink or things like that. And I really shied away from it for a really long period of time because I was like, that just reminds me of all the princesses you watch growing up. And they're all kind of in this one archetype almost of like you said sleeping through the struggle or you know giving their voice like the little mermaid gave her voice to someone else mm-hmm. um and you know they follow these patterns of kind of not being able to share their stories and not being able to even own their stories or be an active participant in kind of what happens to them um and so one of the things that i really love now is that like what our kids are consuming is completely different. So even mm-hmm. like you mentioned Frozen in terms of, you know, she's reclaiming her own power and she's being able to look at her story and be like, how can I shape this to help the community? How can I shape this story to be a reflection of who I truly am and what I want to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know previously like outside of this conversation you and I had chatted about even some of the the other movies coming out like Turning Red um and Encanto and how they tell the stories of like generations and the way that generations are telling their stories and they're evolving and able to kind of pass that on to the future generations and so both of those right now are coincidentally my son's favorite movies um 
And I love it because it gives me an excuse to watch it on repeat. <laughs> an unlimited amount. I'm like, oh, you want to watch Encanto again? Let's do it. Um, I'm pretty sure we both have it memorized now. But knowing that that's what he's going to grow up on instead of, you know, The Little Mermaid. And don't get me wrong. That's still a great movie. I still enjoy it. But in terms of, like, the stories and what we're telling ourselves and how our kids are going to grow up viewing families and structures and even how to heal through trauma and how to tell tell the story of not just you but your family and your lineage and where you come from I think it's amazing and I know that you have um thoughts on both of those movies and Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear some of your reflections there yeah. Um, so I I haven't formally written about this. I've read about, you know, um, a couple of theories around uh, rematriation. It's very new. It's a very new concept that comes from Indigenous authors um, here in Canada and in Australia. Um, but like every concept that is brilliant, and that's another crit- critique, I guess, I suppose, that I have for um, people in general who get upset about like terms like intersectionality outgrowing the original idea. The term is brilliant. The idea is brilliant. Obviously, we need to honor its origin. And it was a Black scholar, female woman who wrote about it in a very particular context. But when an idea is brilliant, which, you know, Crenshaw is, um, and, and the woman before her who was Brazilian, Oh my God, her name escapes me right now. Um, I'll come back to it. Like those ideas grow because the idea transcends. The idea transcends. It's it's so powerful that the idea transcends barriers of culture and time, right? Um, And so I'm just saying that because even though the term rematriation was born of Indigenous Indigenous writers here in Canada and in in uh, Australia, even though the term intersectionality was born from Black authors and writers and scholars, one in Brazil who was already writing about intersectionality before Crenshaw was writing about it, before she wrote about it. These terms, you know, culture evolves. We learn from each other, and we read books that predis pre. Uh, their predecessors to our ideas, and then they form new ideas. Like you were saying, there's an evolution process happening there of thought, creativity. And um, I do think that these movies, if you really pay attention to Turning Red and to Encanto, they are primarily movies about matriarchs. Um, they are movies about, Encanto is about that, that grandmother and how she is structuring that family. And and the renewal of matriarchy through the little girl that is her granddaughter, who is a different part of a different generation of women in her own her own family. And traditionally, I mean, I come from Brazil, where you know it's it's less so, but I mean, I'm the oldest in my family on both sides of the family. And the expectations for me to get married and have children and follow into the footsteps of the mothers in my family was huge. 
It was huge. And I think what these movies are doing is allowing some space, especially like both of those movies. If you look at Encanto, you know, everybody there has their role. And 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 that circle, that family functions and is sustained very much by everybody sustaining their role. And what I think Encanto does masterfully and beautifully is to push that conversation forward through a lot of love. Um, and just saying, maybe as much as Abuela is brilliant, she's not always right. She's not always right. She wasn't right about all the grandchildren. You know, the one girl who, who creates plants needed to create different things. And more beauty came out of that, right? Um, and I think it's asking us, as, as the women who are leaders in families and society, to be a little bit more open-minded, especially about children. As an educator, I have really been, and, and sorry, just to kind of close that thought with the movies, Turning Red is not that different. Um, and it's important to also say, Patra, they were both written by racialized people from within those cultures. So these movies are not appropriations. They are not, they are written by racialized people working in those big studios, tapping into that power, and then questioning the power structures through these children's stories in a beautiful way. Um, uh, Turning Red is about a very domineering mother and who believes strongly that all the pieces have to be falling the, you know, in the same place. And one of the things, and I'll be honest, like I'm a little bit like that. I'm, I'm a little bit controlling. And if I'm not careful, I created my home and like nothing is out of place. And you know, working with children in the education system here, especially one that strives for innovation, I've really learned how important it is to give kids space to dissent, to create, to laugh, to not always be so serious, to create a space in which kids can be kids. Now, they have to, at some point as they get older and their, and their power of reach and their power of causing harm increases, then they have to be held more accountable. But um, I think these two movies, they question and they, they ask us, they lead us to ask the question, you know, how are we going to go back to certain matrilineal values without suffocating our children? I have two daughters. I will, I'll give the example of my two daughters because my daughters gave me permission to speak about this openly. Um, and especially my relationship with my youngest daughter is a very humbling relationship for me. She's very different from me, very different. And I remember this little girl, she was two years old, maybe three, because she was more articulate than that. So she must have been a little bit older. Like, But she was little. She was really little. But like you said, she was already quite aware of her surroundings, right? She's already a sponge. And she looked at me one day and she said, Mom, is it okay if I'm never going to be a mom like you? Will you still love me? And that to me is a little kid who is fully aware that her mother is a force to be reckoned with, very matriarchal. And she's afraid that if she doesn't follow into those footsteps, 
then will still will she still be loved? What is the expectation here for me to grow up? Is there any room to to be different? And one of the things, even if you look at our logo for Feminine Harbor, um, it was very intentionally created. The story behind the logo is a whole beautiful story in itself. Um, it was a, a an Inuit woman who created it, designer at the time. And um, the logo is a flower. But if you look at the flower very carefully, they are four human beings. It's a human shape holding a little baby in the middle. So the, each petal is a human with a baby. Um, and it's four petals indicating like the four directions. Um, so north, south, east, west. And and the babies are mixed. So like one petal is, the petals are, I think, purple. And then the babies are pink or something like that. That was done very, very intentionally which is one, flowers are the sexual organ of nature. It's how we grow life in nature. It's through flowers, right? In this world that we've created. It wasn't always like this, but again, nature evolves. It evolves and it changes. And by keeping children at the center, protected from ourselves even at times, I could squash my little girl and tell her that, why well, expect to have grandchildren? Right. But I've taken those expectations off the table for my girls. And all I ask of them here at home, it's not that they're growing up without direction and without um, without certain expectations. I always say to them, they can date whoever they want to. I expect that person to be kind and to be respectful. I don't really care who they date. They're welcome to date of any culture. They're welcome to date of any gender. But the expectation is that they treat their bodies with respect, that they're kind, and that they have, you know, a sense of family, that that that, that family matters, right? That they're going to come here to my house and then we can all feel safe. I don't care who that person is. I have zero. But but there is an expectation. So it's not to say that it's it's a free for all when we talk about rematriation or these movies, even in Kanto and, and Turning Red, it's not like they're trying to break from the structures completely. There's still a lot of love there. And it's just how do we transform through this love? How do we break from things that perhaps just don't need to be there and give more space for our children to grow up in, in more creative ways, right? Creativity comes through dissent, you know, it's it's when you say no, I, I can do things differently, or I can I can do things and I can I can um, organize things differently. I I'm just remembering a story now of um, so it's very interesting. The Brazilian flag, there is a saying in the middle of the Brazilian flag saying it's it's called uh, the words are order and progress, and the Brazilian flag has been through a lot of renditions, like and also a lot of hate, just like the Canadian flag because of colonization and people realizing that it's part of the structure in the system. Recently, maybe just even six months ago, I read a story of how the original design was actually created by a philosopher that understood how nature works. And the words on the flag were supposed to be love, order, and progress. Because nature organizes itself through a lot of compassion and 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 
a lot of um, communal values. It's it helps like it's there's connectivity, always helping each other out, right? Like through systems, um, and then it organizes itself. And only when there's that level of compassion and 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 sharing, and when there's a certain level of organization, so that there can be communication, then there is progress. Then people evolve, right? And I think a lot about that with these movies, just trying to start with love, reorganizing things in a way that perhaps we haven't before, we haven't envisioned and imagined, centered around women, centered around the women in the families, so that we can evolve through the children. So those are some of my thoughts on that, that we need to be careful not to be too tight on the circles that we create in, and so that we don't suffocate our most precious, precious people on the planet, really, which is mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. And like, even in the sense of creating an environment for these children to really look and be able to evaluate their family structure, their history, the people around them and recognize that there is the capacity to change. And like you said, even bringing that creativity into it, being able to have the creative direction to decide where they want to go and what parts they want to shape themselves in reflection of other people. A hundred percent. That's beautiful. What you just said now was gave me goosebumps. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's because we have to maintain, it's my belief anyways. I think we need to maintain a sense of um, agency, individual agency. People are allowed to have creative thoughts. And therefore, we're human beings, right? Like, people are allowed to to imagine things so that they can improve things. I mean, I keep thinking, you know, of modern medicine and the curiosity and the imagination that has evolved into modern medicine, right? We just also need, conversely, to have the flip side, which is the ethical conversations around, you know, um, all of this power that we can tap into. Um, so I do keep my children very grounded in solid, like family values. I don't think the family values are a problem. You know, when we, when we are, um, criticizing, uh, certain structures, um, you know, to say to my kids, I want the person that you're with, if you ever decide to date to be caring, I don't think we need to throw that out. I -hmm. think we need to throw out, you have to be with a boy because you're a girl. Mm -hmm. Or you have to be with anybody. Right? Like we always hear at our home, we always say like, if you ever choose to be with somebody, then the expectation is that that person is caring, is that that person is someone who will be respectful, who will never put you through harm who will never hurt you in a way that is um, malicious. 
we have those conversations, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think those are good values to be maintained for society and for our own personal safety in general. Um, and for girls, especially, I mean, I want their ambitions and their dreams to be respected, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, they're watching, they're growing up, like you're saying, like watching movies like that, that allows them to have a voice that allows them to, to question things, um, while still being loving girls which is what I think is fascinating about Encanto and Turning Red in particular. Those two little characters, they're, they're beautiful human beings. They're gorgeous and inside and out and they're loving and they're, you know, so you don't have to, to lose on the love in order to renewal the, the capacity of, you know, questioning the systems that you're born in, or you can do that still through a lot of love. And it's funny that like, I think, I mean, I, I'm watching these movies and thinking, okay, okay my entire generation is healing because, you know, I, I healed through those movies because I could see myself in those two little girls, right? And, and um, I could see how, you know, I tried to, I moved all the way to Canada because it was the, the best way to move away from all those expectations, <laughs> I mean, I didn't do it consciously, but when I think about it carefully and I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, you know, like it was a, it was the way to move away from the grandmothers and being the firstborn on both sides of the family, um, you know, and, and, and yet it's funny yet I am very matriarchal still. I do. I ended up playing that role of a mother, but in my own terms. And in my own, mm-hmm. within my own accord and my own, I made certain choices because my father also empowered me to think critically. And so it's interesting for me, like you can't fully detach from your, your sort of purpose in life. I'm, I'm very maternal. I'm, it turns out I'm very motherly, but I think if I had stayed in Brazil and sustaining those circles, I would have gotten married to, I probably wouldn't have become a teacher. I would have worked, you know, in marketing or communication um, just because the education system there is so uh, run down and I was too ambitious for a system that doesn't financially compensate people properly. Um, So there's all sorts of things that, you know, I can see that innovation through human beings happening in terms of moving here and making my own decisions. And yet I'm still in the role that probably my grandmother's thought I would play, which is very maternal. And I'm just not mothering my own inner family. I'm mothering a whole community, right? Like I'm mothering my students, I'm mothering, but I'm still playing that role. But there's a renewal there because there was the capacity to dissent and to say, no, I don't want to stay here. I'm going to, I'm going to move away from these circles. But then you, I formed my own and I, and I reconfigured, I reorganized them. And for me, that's something I said in, a, in an interview I gave in Portuguese uh, a few months ago because I, I won that award for the YWCA. Um, and for me, especially as an educator, we need to look at innovation, even the word innovation. Like we have to stop thinking of it as technology. Uh, technology comes from human beings. We create this. 
So if we truly want to innovate, I believe in innovation through us. Innovation happens through human beings. Healed human beings are the ones that are going to bring about true innovation because it's people who have hearts that are longing for love and who truly have hope and who believe in the power of the land who will then look at all the power tools that we have right now and say, okay, I don't want to completely throw everything out, but look at what I can do with these. And and that innovation will only come about in an authentic manner and in a manner that is ethical and loving and that can create more beauty if it goes if it's filtered through us, through our healing, through our experiences of becoming of becoming better people. So I really hope that we can start looking at innovation in a very different way. It is through the children, it's through the healing. And it's what we put out in the world that is filtered through our experiences of racialized people who are questioning the circles, who are moving into different directions in the world that we are now given the opportunity to go to. And and how do we then bring a little bit of what's good about us and and yeah, and reinvent certain things in um in a healthier way. I think that's it's really powerful to recognize that, you know, those patterns, it comes down to like that concept of like um, nature versus nurture, like what is innate with you and what comes from what you're surrounded by. And so Mm -hmm. even following that, that pattern of being a very maternal person um, and really taking care of and loving those people around you really kind of echoes through who you are um, even despite kind of being a little bit more removed from that, which I think is really, I think it's both fascinating, but also should be very like empowering because then it comes from a point of that's genuine to who you are. And it's not just a mimic of, of the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially given like the topic of this conversation, I know that this question seems like it really doesn't do it justice, but (laughs) what is one component of your story that you think is important for other people to hear? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah, I think I think the most important thing, and I didn't tell all, all of my story. I mean, I've been through a lot of really sad situations, really sad. I think for me, the most important thing is to not, to not let yourself, to not give away your power of telling your own story, of owning your own story. Because there's a lot of trauma, a lot of, um, a lot of hurt that can define us and it, it can overpower us. 
you know, I could have become forever traumatized from a situation where I was drugged and and abandoned on a ditch in the Yellow Gorge, or I could have become incredibly traumatized by a very complex, convoluted, mutually abusive marriage. Um, you know, at the time, but I I didn't let any of that through a lot of therapy, a lot of prayer, a lot of work on forgiveness, a lot of work on understanding my story and, 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 and taking charge and reflecting that power of reflection and ownership of my story, the good and the bad, that is mine. And no one can take that away from me. So, you know, I did become a mother, but I became a mother in my own terms. Mm-hmm. I did become a matriarch, but I became a matriarch in my own terms. So I think, you know, that's the thing that I wish people need to own their stories. And by owning their stories, I do mean the good and the bad and be reflective about who they are. Take ownership of of, of who you are and acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the good and be very honest with yourself about it. 